Turn with me, please, to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 is where we'll be studying the word this morning. Next week, we'll return to the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy chapter 6. But this morning, Daniel 6 becomes a challenge for us as we come toward the new year. Let's stand together, please, out of reverence for the Lord and His holy word. It is an incredible privilege to be hearing the very word of the living God. And I will read it aloud as you follow along. Daniel chapter 6 in its entirety. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors of whom Daniel was one, the satraps might give an account to, to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found, uh, fault found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and the divisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for thirty days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his window open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decrees. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any God or man within 30 days, except you, O king, should be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the thing is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with it with himself. And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he had come to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now, the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. And the king gave the command and they brought those men who had, who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children and their wives. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote. To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions." So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Lord, as we come to your word again, we humble ourselves, understanding that you are God and we are not recognizing that it is your word that has authority and not our own words. 
we would ask, Lord, this morning that by your spirit, you would enable us to understand your word. But even more than understanding it, that you would enable us to live according to it. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. If you've been to the beach and you've thrown rocks into the water, you'll be able to answer this question. What difference can a pebble make against the tide? You have a whole tide that just comes relentlessly in, storming in, yet there are rocks and all the sand that are on the shore, and they make such a little difference against it. This morning I want you to consider the pebble, a man named Daniel, just one of a handful of uh, actually thousands of Judean captives that had been taken into Babylon. He'd be a 16-year-old boy who probably lost his parents in war. He probably lost many of his own siblings in uh, the capture of Jerusalem. And now he's been taken off into a foreign land where he didn't know the language, had to totally be re-educated. What difference can one little pebble make when you have such a vast empire as the Babylonian Empire? Not only do we find the insignificance of Daniel, the pebble, but I want you to consider the vastness of the tide that I'm speaking of. Consider the vastness of the Babylonian Empire. Babylon at this time was not an up and coming empire. Babylon had been a great power, basically from the history of civilization. Uh, Babylon is in the area known as Mesopotamia, the cradle of civilization. Mesopotamia would be the land between the two rivers, the river Tigris and Euphrates. That is where the history of civilization began. And if you go all the way back in time, that is where you would find the Tower of Babel. That's where eventually you'd find the Babylonian Empire. You'd find Hammurabi, who was one of the great kings. He was a contemporary of Abraham in the Bible. Hammurabi had written a series of law codes that was uh, remarkable as to its consistency, its justice, their sense of equity. These people were amazing going back thousands of years ago, 2,000 years before the time of Christ. So that'd be 4,000 years ago as far as what we know of written history. That is how ancient it is. As a matter of fact, if you go to Iraq, which is modern day Babylon, and a few years ago when we had invaded Iraq and bombed it so much, there was a lot of concern about the museums that might be uh, bombed and some of the artifacts that would be lost. And the American soldiers were able to go and help recover some of those artifacts. And the reason there was so much concern is because the history of Babylon is the history of mankind itself. They understood that this is where all of civilization began. Well, they were very, very developed in their civilization even 4,000 years ago. In their civil engineering, they were building towers that would rival modern day um, works of art. Of architecture, such as the skyscrapers that you would find in large cities. They had a tower at one time that they estimated to be one third the size of the of the of the uh, of the Empire State Building. So vast towers that they would build. They were building and engineering bridges that would cross their rivers. They had huge temples that they were building, but they were also scientifically adept. Uh, they were studying the stars and were able to even anticipate and predict uh, eclipses before we would even imagine their understanding of the stars. Uh, they were advanced in their mathematical knowledge. These were the ones who were able to come up with the 360 degree circle that we're still using in geometry today. And they were the ones who had come up with the 60 minute hour and the 60 second minute. We're still using those things. Those were established or those things were discovered anyway and understood by the Babylonians 4000 years ago. Well, when Daniel had come about a thousand or fifteen hundred years later, we were finding a revived Babylonian Empire. It was under the King Nebuchadnezzar who had defeated the Egyptians and was able to extend Babylonian Empire all the way down into Africa. He had extended the influence all the way to the eastern portions of Asia and then all the way even uh, he would go into the West and into Europe. And so the first real great world empire was this Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel was one pebble who was coming in from Judah, a young boy, one of thousands of captives, who was going to have an influence to not only influence and cause ripples within this tide, but he was someone who would be able to stem the tide. He'd be able to turn the tide entirely and be able to influence world empires and world emperors to come to know the one true God. Daniel was the greatest missionary that ever lived. Not because he was sent out to be a missionary, and certainly not because he was trained at the Jerusalem Seminary of Missionary Training. 
Instead, Daniel was one who knew his God. And because he knew God, he represented God and made a massive difference on empire so that kings like Nebuchadnezzar would come to know that the most high God rules over the kingdom of men. And in the case of the story that we've read today, there would be a king of another world empire, the Medo-Persian empire. He would come to recognize that he is the living God and he's steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. When we are getting ready to go into another year, you might ask, what difference can a Christian make in the world that's all around us? In Pakistan, we have terrorism that seems to be becoming more and more of the problem. The war against terror looks like it's going to be endless. What difference will be made? We're coming up on an election year in the U.S. We have all kinds of uncertainty as to who will be governing, governing us. And all that we know is that there will definitely be changes. When there are changes such as this, what can we learn from a life of someone like Daniel, who God used so that we perhaps can make a difference in the day in which we live? Daniel chapter 6 is written, not at the beginning of Daniel's life, but at the end. Daniel is no longer a 16-year-old boy, but he's now more like an 84-year-old man. And as an 84-year-old man, he's still having an influence upon cultures around him. And what we're finding in Daniel chapter 6 are three things in contrast, three things that as we end this year and begin a new year will be helpful for us as Christians to resolve, not just to resolve, but to purpose and to set some goals and understand what is it that will enable us to make a difference in the coming year. First, we see within this chapter the continuous turmoil of the world. We see everything ebbing and flowing and fluxing and changing. We see a world in chaos. Second, we see a consistent testimony of a believer. The consistent testimony of a believer stands out like dark or like light in the midst of darkness. So different than the continuous turmoil of the world. And finally, that consistent testimony of a believer is based upon, standing upon, the constant uh, trustworthiness of God. And so three things that we'll see. The continuous turmoil of the world, a consistent testimony of a believer, and the constant trustworthiness of God. It all begins with a continuous turmoil of the world where we see that everything in this world is changing, ebbing and flowing, wavering like the waves of the sea. As a matter of fact, everything around us is kind of like the weather in Colorado. If you don't like it, wait for five minutes and it will change. You know how that that is. Everyone said, hey, wait for five minutes and it's going to change. Well, that's for good and for bad. And that's the way that the uh, stock market is. If you don't like it, wait for five minutes. It will change. That's the way military uh, victories seem to go. If you don't like it, wait for five minutes and it will change. That's the way the political opinion is in the world around us. We're living in a world that is in continuous turmoil. Chaos. And that's nothing new. It happened even back in Daniel's day where there were people who tried to have some sort of sense of stability. They tried to come up with a facade of continuity or something that was strong. But the truth is everything was going to change, including empires and administrations. If you were to look at this passage, it says in wishful thinking in verse six and then also in verse 21, O king, live forever. No king is going to live forever. So Darius would not be the source of stability for Daniel's life. Uh, no king or administrator could be. Why? Because Daniel understood as an 84 year old man, he had lived during all of the reigns of many different kind of leaders. For instance, just when it came to Judah, the land of Judah, the, the, the tribe of Judah, which would be southern Israel. They had Jerusalem as their capital capital. They had been led by children of David for so long. As far as their kings, you'd have King Josiah. Daniel was born into King Josiah's reign. King Josiah reigned for about 31 years. King Josiah, according to the Bible, was the greatest of Israel's kings, the greatest of Judah's kings, the greatest king that they ever had, because he was the king who had sent some people into a temple to do some renovations and rebuild the temple. When they got in there, they found a copy of the law that had been lost. They began reading it and saw all the different ways that they had become disobedient. And so they come to this young king and they said, here's the law that we found. Here's what we've read. They read it to him. And he, too, was overwhelmed and humbled and broken. And he began obeying it. He called all the leaders of his kingdom together and they began reading the law. And there was a revival during the days of Josiah so that they re reacquainted themselves with God and with his word. And they began tearing down all the places of idolatrous worship. They began making covenants to obey and walk with the Lord. And Daniel would have been born into the revival of that period. And undoubtedly, Daniel's life had been greatly influenced because of King Josiah, who had 
who had reaffirmed and recommitted the people to walking in God's way. But once Josiah had been killed by the Egyptians, they placed his son, Jehoahaz, into the throne, onto the throne. And he reigned only three months after Jehoahaz came Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim's name had been changed by Pharaoh Necho to Eliakim, and he was supposed to be a vassal of the Egyptian king. He reigned for 11 years. Until eventually the Babylonians came to destroy Jerusalem and they placed Jehoiakim on the throne. He reigned for three months and Jehoiakim was replaced by Zedekiah, who reigned for 11 years. Zedekiah ultimately led a rebellion against Babylon that was totally failed. And as a result, Jerusalem was destroyed. The wall was destroyed. The temple was burned. Everything was lost. And so just within Daniel's lifetime, he had seen all of these kings in Judah. He had also been under the Egyptian empire and seen Pharaoh Necho. But then he came to live in Babylon where he would have Nebuchadnezzar be the king over him for such a long time. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't live forever. Nabonidus, his son, would have taken his place. And then Belshazzar and Daniel experienced all of these different administrations. Eventually, he would see the fall of the Babylonian Empire and he'd see the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Medo-Persian Empire mean, meant that a man named Darius came to be the king. And soon after Darius had been the king, Cyrus the Persian would have led. And so all of these different administrations were things that he had experienced in his life, seeing the continuous turmoil of the world all around him. Not only did he see those, but he had envisioned through different dreams and visions that God had given. He had envisioned and, and anticipated a coming Greek kingdom that would be under Alexander the Great. He saw the days when the Roman Empire would be established. And he saw all of the great world empires. And yet his hope was not in any emperor, not in any king or administration. He understood the continuous turmoil that everything ebbs and flows and changes when it comes to empires and administrations and leadership. This passage also highlights the continuous turmoil of the world when it talks about politics and public opinion. Talk about public opinion changing. There had been a time when Daniel was the great hero of all of the leaders of Babylon. The, the wise men were supposed to give a dream and give the interpretation of that dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Because they were not able to do that, he began slaughtering all of them. Hundreds of men were ready to lose their life as Nebuchadnezzar was threatening them. But just as the slaughter was beginning, Daniel stepped up and he said, Nebuchadnezzar, if you'd be patient, I'll go to my God and I'll pray. And perhaps God will give this vision and give the sense of what it is that you've seen. And Daniel was able to come back and give that dream, give the interpretation. And because of that, he saved the lives of hundreds of men, hundreds of men who were singing his praises and saying, Hail Daniel, Daniel, Daniel. He's our man. He's the one that we're behind and we support him. Only to come to the end of his life when many of those men are now threatened by him, jealous of him, envious of his position. And now they're doing everything they can to find some charge against him so that they can destroy him from his place. Public opinion constantly changes. If you are depending upon public opinion, even your children's opinion of you, then you understand that it's going to ebb and flow. One day you're going to be the greatest mom that ever lived. Why? Because you made the best meal and the kids love that. The next day you serve broccoli or spinach or something that's healthy and good for them. And they're going to be asking for a new mom. They want to impeach you because of the uh, disservice that you've provided. You can't base your life on public opinion. People will always one, one day they're going to be thinking you gave the best message in church that ev ever has been given. The next week they'll be saying, he must be a blasphemer. He must be, wrong, must be wrong with God because that was just, man, that message just did not live up to previous messages he's given. Public opinion always ebbs and flows, and that can't be the source of our life or the stability of our life. This passage also highlights the continuous turmoil of the world when it talks about laws that change. Listen to this kind of wishful thinking in verse 8. King, we want you to establish a law so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Three different times it talks about in this passage that the law of the Medes and the Persians does not alter. It does not change. And yet three different times the law is changing. That's wishful thinking. They have this facade in Medo-Persia thinking that our laws are stable. It gives us strength. It gives us continuity. But that's all a facade. The truth is, the reality is, is everything is changing, including the laws that are passed. And that's why, as Christians in America today, our hope is not in who governs us or in what laws are passed. No matter what laws may be passed to enforce righteousness or live according to biblical things, those laws ultimately can be changed with the next administration that would come around. We can't get all excited about it. We can't 
base our stability upon who wins an election or in what laws are passed or which laws are revoked. Everything around us continually changes. The last thing that always changes, that even shows the continuous turmoil of the world in this chapter are the emotions that changed. Look in verse 14. In verse 14, when the king heard these words, he was greatly displeased with himself. His own heart was displeased with himself when he had thought, hey, this is great. I'm going to make a law. Everyone will be looking to me. I'm kind of feeling proud and good about myself. And then all of a sudden he realizes that his own friend is being impacted. And now he's displeased with himself. He's upset. His emotions go from a high to a low that quickly. Such a remarkable change. And here's the king who's supposed to be so stable, so dignified, so majestic. And yet everything, including all of his emotions, are continually changing. Let me tell you something. Your emotions as a Christian, you cannot trust them. So often Christians in America are so emotional that we go to one experiential service where our emotions are stirred and we're up. But that those emotions just don't last. And soon they leave us down with a low on Monday. And now we have to live the rest of the week. Trying to come off of that. I don't know if you're like me and I don't know if you even recognize this, but I am by nature a very emotional person. Very high, very low. That's just the way God had made me. But being a high and a low person, it would be easy for me. Uh, I could go to a I could go to a soccer game on Saturday that I'm coaching. And if we lose that soccer game, my 11 year old girls could lose a soccer game. And after the soccer game, I'm thinking, woe is me. How in the world can I pastor a church? I can't even coach 11 year old girls. And then I could come through Sunday and have such a great day. And I'm thinking, hey, you know what? Church is going great. Everything is wonderful. Thank you, God, for making me a pastor. And Monday morning, I'm so discouraged and depressed and thinking, oh, now I have to get ready for a whole nother week. And my, my own kids don't even listen to me. How in the world can I be a pastor? You see, I could be by nature very emotional, very up, very down. But there's got to be something that will provide a stability. A consistency. There's got to be something that I can stand on that is better than the administrations around me or the laws that are being passed or the people that I know or their opinion of me or even my own emotions. I cannot stand upon these things. All of these things are sinking sand. All of these things are waves that have no merit. Instead, there's got to be a foundation upon which we can build our lives And just like the wise man who built his house, his life upon the foundation of hearing and knowing the word of God, according to the New Testament, Daniel was a man whose life was built on a solid foundation. And that man was used to make a remarkable difference because he had a consistent testimony in spite of the continuous turmoil that was all around him. The consistent testimony of a believer evident throughout this passage is found especially in verse three. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps. It said that he distinguished himself. That means that he stood out. He was different. He was unique. That doesn't mean that he was distinct and different because he had pink hair and radical clothing that he was wearing. We have not a lot of Christians nowadays, especially the younger generation who think, hey, I'm going to be rad for Jesus. Well, just to interpret that for those of you that are older, I'll be radical for Jesus, which means different for Jesus, which really they're trying to be different by being the same as everyone else in this world is. They're being radical in the same way that everyone else around is being radical. You can't distinguish yourself truly as a Christian by your wild hair or your body piercings or your funky T-shirts or clothes or whatever it is that you have. Daniel distinguished himself. He was distinct and different. Uh, because he stood out in, in a way that's called holiness. The Bible says with holiness that we should be holy, even as our heavenly father is holy. To be holy means to be distinct. It means to be different. Now, we've got a problem in American Christianity because American Christians don't want to be different. I'm talking about from the older generation now. We want to be just like them. We, we don't want to stand out. And so we go to the culture and we say, how much of that culture can we be just like them? Thinking that the more that we're like them, the more that we'll influence them. When actually the opposite is true. You cannot influence a culture when you're exactly like them. And the more we're like them, the less influence we'll have upon them. And so our goal isn't to conform. Our goal isn't to be exactly like them. The goal of a Christian is to distinguish ourselves, to be different and not to be radically different in a strange, weird kind of way, but be radically different in a holy kind of way, a kind of character that distinguishes itself and stands out. Honesty. You think that stands out in a day where there's so much dishonesty? 
unselfishness and putting the needs of other people ahead of yourself. You think that stands out in our day? A good work ethic where you're offering an honest day's work for an honest day pay. You think that kind of work ethic makes a difference and stands out in a day like today? Honesty, humility, integrity. Those are the kind of things will make, that will make you distinguish yourself as a student. Distinguish yourself as a doctor. Distinguish yourself as a businessman or as a wife. These are the things of personal holiness that will cause you to distinguish yourself from people around you. This passage not only ex- talks about Daniel distinguishing himself, but it continues on in verse 3 when it says, He distinguished himself above these others because an excellent spirit was in him. The excellent spirit within him is indicating that not just did he have a good aura about him. It wasn't just talking about the spirit of the man that was just wonderful and everyone was drawn to it. Instead, this is an Old Testament explanation of the spirit of God empowering and changing someone so that here would be an example of someone who walked in the spirit. Here'd be an example of someone who is who is controlled by the spirit because he's controlled by the spirit. He's got fruit of the spirit in his life. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness. Now, let me explain this. The ministry of the Holy Spirit has been vastly different through the history of mankind. In the Old Testament, you'd have the Holy Spirit and he was the same Holy Spirit we have today, had the same attributes because God never changes. However, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is that he would come upon people for specific tasks. He would come upon David and anoint David for a task. Or he'd come upon Saul or Samson. And in this case, he might come upon Daniel and enable them for a specific task. But then he would also leave. That's why he removed his spirit from Saul. He removed his spirit from Samson when he had cut his hair. And David had even said in Psalm 51, remove not your spirit from me. Why? Because that was a legitimate concern and a legitimate threat that David was concerned that he might lose the spirit of God from coming upon him for those things if he had sinned against God. The Old Testament was anticipating a better relationship, a time in which the spirit of God would not just be upon people, but he would be within them. And so you have a new covenant that says the law of God would not just be written on stone, but it'd be written on our heart. To be written on our heart is implying something internal, something by which the Spirit of God would do. So the Old Testament was looking forward to some relationship with the Spirit that would be better. During the Gospels, the time of Jesus Christ here on earth, you could say that the Spirit of God was with men. By being with men, you're talking about Jesus Christ, a man who is perfectly indwelt by and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Everything he did was led and guided by the Spirit of God. But even Jesus said that it's better for you that I go away. Because if I go away, then I'll send the Holy Spirit. And not only will he be with you, but he will be in you. And so Jesus was anticipating the gospel, something that would be better. So that in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come upon people, but they anticipated something better. In the gospels, during the life of Jesus, the Spirit of God was with people, but they were anticipating something better. And in fulfillment of that new covenant and in fulfillment of Jesus' promise, you have the day of Pentecost and you have the church age in which the Spirit of God is now indwelling people. The Bible says that if you do not have his spirit in you, you are not of Christ. Meaning that if you are a believer, you have the spirit of God dwelling in you. What? Know you not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. He indwells you. And that means since he is in you, you have a unique relationship and empowerment by the spirit in which you can live a godly life and live in a way that is pleasing to God. Unlike people throughout all the rest of Christian history or world history has been. Daniel though he lived in the Old Testament, was an example of an Old Testament saint that had the same kind of, he had the same kind of effect of the Spirit of God within his life. Even though the Spirit of God would come upon him, he was a man who walked in the Spirit, was controlled by the Spirit. And since he was controlled by the Spirit, he demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit. Listen, here's a man who distinguished himself because of love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness. He distinguished himself by his character. Not because of his weirdness and certainly not because of his experience or even his gifting. We're living again in a day today in which people are thinking, if I have the spirit of God, then I must have some sort of gifts. It must be some sort of experience that I'm looking for. And the Bible tells us that it is not the experiences of the spirit. It's not the gifts of the spirit, but it's the fruit of the spirit that shows you your genuine relationship with God. The fruit of the spirit is a far more accurate barometer to the condition of your spiritual life than anything else. How do I know that? Well, I could have the gift of the Spirit to where I could speak some sort of great message. But God is able to speak through a donkey. That doesn't mean that that donkey is pleasing to God and that he's walking in a right relationship with God. Here's more proof to what I'm saying. 
lot of people in our day say, say, hey, if you want to be filled with the Spirit, then you're going to have these particular gifts. And I'm not going to get into all of the different gifts, except to tell you that no gift shows that you're in a right relationship with God. From 1 Corinthians 13, we read, If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but if I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all of my gifts, all of my clothes, if I give all of my wealth to the poor and feed the poor, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. If I prophesy or if I have all knowledge and understanding, but if I do not have love, I am nothing. In other words, all the gifts that I might demonstrate, none of that is an accurate barometer of my relationship with God. It is the fruit of the Spirit that shows that I am walking in the Spirit and I'm a true child of God, led by His Spirit, walking with Him. And He produces love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness. I'm telling you, within our community... There are people all around us who are thinking that, oh, have such a great spirit, have such a great anointing. Why? Because of some experience that they have. And then they turn around and live a life of disobedience and walking according to the flesh all week long. And those people need to know that people are needed like Daniel. Daniel like people who have a consistent testimony. And that consistent testimony is one where they are. There's an excellent spirit within them. And that excellent spirit is not just about what they see. It's not just about an experience they have. That excellent spirit is about the character of their life. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness. That is what the world around us needs to see. The Nebuchadnezzars of the world need to see someone who is loving. Like Daniel. A man who loved not just people who were kind to him, but he loved his enemies. Daniel loved Nebuchadnezzar, the man who had probably killed his parents. The man who was responsible for killing many of his siblings and certainly a lot of his friends, destroying his hometown. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar, when he is being told that God is going to judge him and take his mind from him, Daniel doesn't come in and gloat and say, finally, he's going to get what he has coming to him. Instead, Daniel says, oh, king, he said, if you repent and turn to God, then perhaps you will have mercy and and you won't face this judgment that is coming upon you. There's a man who loves his, his enemies and he loves his neighbor. He's a man of joy. He's able to go off into captivity, and yet even under captivity, he's able to thrive as he has a certain joy that overcomes even the circumstances that he has. He has a peace that passes understanding, because great peace have they which love thy law, nothing shall offend them. And that will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on me, because he trusteth in me. This is a man who is a man of an excellent spirit. And because of that, he distinguishes himself from all the world that is around him by his holiness. And his excellent spirit means that he's a man who's walking in the spirit and showing the fruit of the spirit. And because of that, he's blameless, according to verse four. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. According to this passage, he was blameless, meaning that even the enemies would look upon him to try to bring some accusation. But the blamelessness of his life and character meant that he walked with God and he had a consistency of his testimony. That kind of blamelessness is exactly what elders, deacons, aspiring elders, aspiring deacons, that is what we as Christians ought to have. Why? Because there's a whole world that's looking to find some sort of spot or blemish against us. They want some sort of charge that they'll bring against us. But a blameless life is one that distinguishes itself by being pure and holy according to God's spirit and his character that he produces so that there is no charge that can stick when they try to bring it against us. He distinguished himself. There's an excellent spirit, number two. He was blameless, number three. This consistent testimony of a believer is, number four, that he was faithful. He was faithful. To be faithful is found in verse 16 when it said, He continually served his God. To continually serve him means that he was just loyal. He was dependable. Listen to this. This is key. What king in his right mind keeps the same advisors and administrators from a previous administration? I mean, you know that when the next election happens, there's a new president. You'll know that there's going to be a new press secretary. There's going to be a a new cabinet altogether. You just don't keep the previous, especially if they're enemies, especially if they're of the other party. Well, here we find Daniel thriving and coming to leadership under Darius. The Mede, he had, been the, he had been the enemy of the previous generation, the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Daniel had an influence not only in Babylon, but now he has an influence in Medo-Persia. And the reason he has an influence in them is because they know that this is a loyal, dependable, trustworthy person. 
It's not that he's the best speaker in all the kingdom. It's not that he's the most flashy personality of everyone else. It's not that he has greater ideas than anyone else. He's faithful. He's dependable. He's reliable. Faithfulness. Faithfulness means we keep our promises. We keep our relationships. Faithfulness would mean that he'd be faithful even to his wife. Now, Daniel didn't have a wife because he was made a eunuch when he came up out of uh, Judah. But he's the kind of man who'd be faithful to his wife. He'd be a one-woman kind of man. I'm just going to tell you. I'm going to tell you right now. You cannot have a good, consistent testimony of a Christian if you're not faithful to your spouse. Hello? Is there anyone else that can say hello? Amen? Amen? Amen. Hello? It's kind of the same thing. Good night. We've got people that are bouncing all over the walls telling us how spiritual they are because they can roll in the aisles and they can dance and they can cry and they can speak in tongues. And then they go out cheating on their wife or cheating on their husband. Come on. Hello. You can't be consistent testimony that way. You've got to be faithful. Faithful not only to my family, but I'd be faithful and loyal and dependable upon what God calls me to do. We've got deacons all around here who've been given certain responsibilities. Guess what? You've got to be faithful and responsible and dependable and just what God has called you to do. You say, well, I don't like doing this. I want to do something bigger, better. I want to influence empires. Well, you can't influence empires or emperors until you're just faithful in the, that which is little. Be faithful with what God has given to you. Right in your spot. Be faithful, dependable, loyal. Follow through on those little things where, where you are right now. This is a man who is faithful, dependable, loyal because of what God was doing in his life. And yet, there's another description of his testimony. Fifth, he was devoted. Look at verse 5. These men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. And what was that devotion that he had toward God? What did it look like? Verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room with his window open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day. And he prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. From early day on, here's someone who loved God with all of his heart. He loved God and it was seen in his prayer. It was seen in his thanksgiving. And his love for God is what drove all the rest. Here is someone who communed with God and trusted in God. Here's someone who's not schmoozing with all of the politicians and figuring out how to get ahead politically. Instead, he goes and he fellowships with God and he says, God, you put me where you want me. So God takes a little pebble and he doesn't just make ripples in the tide. He stems the tide and he uses this little pebble to proclaim to all the kings of all the earth that it's the most high God who reigns over all the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Think about this. Nebuchadnezzar came to know the true God because there was a missionary named Daniel who had not been sent as a missionary. He was just faithful where God had placed him. He's devoted to God and loving and serving God right where he is. And God uses that consistent testimony to make a massive difference. Love for God and communion with God, that drove everything else. There's not only love for God, it was his trust in God. Later it says he was delivered from this den of lions because he believed in his God. To believe in his God means that he trusts him. I love him and I trust him, but here's the key of the whole thing. Daniel loved and he trusted his God because Daniel knew God. <clears throat> Daniel 11.32 is the key verse of the whole book. And it says this, But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. It's not people who strategically plan their future success. It's not people who go to seminars so they can learn how to win friends and influence people worldwide. It is not people who are gifted because of their tremendous amount of wealth or because of their heritage. It's people who know God, who make a difference. So you'd have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego making a difference in a fiery furnace. Why? Because they knew God. And knowing Him, they loved Him, trusted Him, and they accurately represented Him and obeyed Him, and God provided for them in every way. And now we come to Daniel, who made a difference in lives because he knew his God. And because he knew God, he loved Him. Because he loved God, he trusted in Him. Because he trusted Him, he obeyed Him. And when he obeyed Him, God did great, mighty things through his life. You see, here's a passage that's indicating to us that the consistent testimony of a believer is that his life is founded on something else. If it's not emotions that I can trust because they're up and down. If it's not administration that gives stability because we don't know what's going to happen in this year that's coming ahead. Then how will it be that I can have a certain stability and not be fearful of the year that's coming ahead? How can I be available so that God can perhaps use me and my circles of influence in 2008? What will be the difference? 
The consistent testimony of a believer is based upon the constant trustworthiness of God. The constant trustworthiness of God is especially expressed when King Darius is writing all nations. Would you listen to this? King Darius, a Medo-Persian king, a pagan emperor, one who had not previously known God in any way. Here's what he writes. To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. You don't think God is concerned about world missions? I mean, he's not just concerned about one little city. He's concerned about everyone everywhere. And he wants everyone everywhere to come to know him. And he's going to use individual little pebbles who are out there who know him to make him known to people elsewhere. And now God's using this empire emperor to write to all nations. Here's what he says to them. I'll make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Who is this God? He is the living God. He is steadfast forever. His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. All of this is telling us a couple of things about our God. Number one, since he's steadfast forever, that means that he never changes. The Bible says that the world will pass away. Elements will melt with fervent heat. But God and his word, they never change. And since God and his word never change, you can trust him and you can know him. Because as you know him through his word, he'll never change. This provides stability. Hey, how much stability do you have in technology? Bill Gates is making millions of dollars, billions of dollars, because he keeps changing. I mean, why doesn't he just come out with one computer program that always works and always does what it's supposed to do? Instead, they have to have Microsoft 3.1. Then you have to have NT. And then you have to have XP. And then WZ or whatever it is. I mean, they come up with... It's always changing. Every four years, you have to buy a whole new program for your computer. Have you ever noticed that there is no Bible 3.1? There's no Bible XP. There's no Bible 08. The Bible is always the same. It never changes. It's perfect. It's steadfast. It's sure. It's founded. And, and we can trust God. He never changes. If He never changes, we can know Him and trust Him. That's what we know, but we also know that He is my judge. Daniel, His name means God is my judge. And when He says in verse 22, I have found, I've been found innocent by Him, that's all that mattered to Daniel. I don't care about public opinion. I don't care what other people see about me or what they think about me. Those people don't know me as I really am. And so those people that think I'm bad, they don't know how bad I really am. Those people that think I'm good, they have no clue as to what I am. The only one that I really care about what he thinks about me is God. God is my judge. And I must be found innocent before him. And so he is the only one that I'm trying to impress. I can't pull the wool over his eyes. He knows that God never changes. He knows that God is his judge. He also knows that God is my deliverer. To know that God is my deliverer means that this is a man who knew the word of God. And he said, I don't have to come up with some sort of scheme to, to deliver myself from lions. He's not a lion trainer who happened to be down there and convince the lions. No, there's no scheme about it. He said, God is able to deliver me and I will entrust myself to him and he will do what is best. He knew that God was his deliverer. He also knew that God was his avenger or his defender to be his defender and his avenger meant that Daniel didn't have to go bitterly seeking resentment or seeking justice or seeking revenge against his enemies. He was free to step back and say, God will protect me. God will take care of me. And if God chooses to throw my enemies into the lion's den, then God will take care of them. He's not looking out for his own interests and protecting his own name. Listen, who cares what people say about you? God is your defender. Who cares what they've done to you? God is your protector. God will defend your name. God will avenge you of the wrongs that are there. If you simply know him, love him and trust him, then God will take you and use you. Say, all right, Pastor Jeff, what are you getting at? What's this mean for us as 2008 approaches? Here's what it means. It means that if you're all worried about what the year coming year holds because you don't know what the Broncos are going to do, well, stop worrying. They're going to stink like they do every year. <laughs> if you're all concerned about 2008 and you're thinking, oh, well, what's the, uh, what's the stock market going to do? Am I going to be stable? <laughs> no, you won't be. As a matter of fact, you're one terrorist attack away from being all the way back at the bottom again. You can't build your stability or hope on that. How about your job security? What is that? Job security in America today? It used to be people would have the same job, same career for a long period of time. Now, you don't have that. 
So, are, is our hope and dreams pent up with some candidate who's going to be running for office? Ay, ay, ay. Are you watching the same candidates I'm watching? I don't think any of them can make any sense out of that mess anyway. How about in, how about in military conquest? You know, we've got the strongest military in the world. We still can't trust in that. Ultimately, it comes down to this. The people who know their God will be strong and carry out exploits. Amen. The only thing that you can control is your knowledge of God. Because He's revealed Himself to you through His Word. So you can read His Word to know about His name, to know about His promises, to know about His character, to know about His commands that we are to obey. You can take the privilege of knowing Him more through 2008 and that will provide a consistency of your life that will stand in contrast to all the turmoil that is guaranteed to be around the corner in the world around us. That is why at Grace Bible Church we are committed to preaching and living the Word of God. Hey, we might not have the flashiest service. I mean, there will be services such as the Christmas Eve service. That was unbelievable, man. What people had done to get that ready, that was a unique, special time. But we're not going to be lighting candles every time or singing Christmas carols all the time. Not every service is going to stir you up emotionally to where you're like, ooh, wow, wow, that was wonderful. Some services you're going to scratch your head and say, ooh, man. Boy, that music fell a little flat today. That's okay. Music can fall flat because we don't build it upon music and emotions. Instead, we are trying to teach the Word of God. As we are teaching the Word of God, people can build their life upon, upon the foundation so that you don't just have an experience that gets you through Sunday and leaves you low and blue on Monday and no power through the rest of the week. Instead, we're trying to build lives upon the Word of God so that Monday through Sunday you can worship and serve and honor God. So we're going to keep teaching the Word because we want you to know God. Knowing God, we want you to worship Him. Worshiping, we want, we want you to love Him, trust Him, obey Him. We want this to provide the stability for your life and the stability even for our church. It would allow us to be a consistent testimony in the world around us. Biggest testimony? No way. Not likely that we're going to be the biggest testimony in Colorado Springs or anywhere else. But there should be a consistency that God can take a little pebble like you. God could take a little pebble like us as a church. God could take a pebble like me. And God, if you want to use me to stem the tide, then you do whatever you want. I simply want to know you, love you, trust you, and obey you. And the results will be in your hands. Whoever it is that you want me to influence, let a consistency of my life affect other people. 16-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 8-year-olds. No matter how young you may be, Daniel was someone who knew God. Because he knew God, that paved the way for him. 84-year-olds, 70-year-olds, 65-year-olds. Even at the end of his life, Daniel was not put on the shelf. He wasn't used up. He was usable even at the end of his life because he knew God. Keep reading the Word, memorizing the Word, meditating upon the Word. Keep going to the Word of God so that you can know who God is and love and trust Him. And let me be clear about what I'm saying. I'm not saying set a goal to read through the Bible all the year and then just you, you read your chapter a day to get, keep the devil away and you're done. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about reading with a purpose of finding and knowing God. Read with this book so that you can find His attributes. Write them out. Look for His name. Look for His promises. Look for who He is and, and love Him. Trust Him. Pray to Him. Become devoted to Him. Reading through the Bible in this year, that would be a great goal. But it's a good goal only if it is allowing you to know God, not just so that you can check off something on a to-do list. Oh, may we come to know Him more. Bow with me, please, in prayer. Lord, we're a bunch of pebbles. We are weak. We are nothing. And the world around us, it is so vast and the need is so huge. Lord, a whole world that needs to know that your kingdom is the everlasting one and your dominion reign, lasts forever. A whole world where they need to come know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and come to trust in Him, walk with Him. And Lord, here we are, so weak, so frail, so limited in our resources. We're like disciples. We say we have a few loaves, a few fish, but what is that when the need is so great? Lord, we are like Daniel saying, I'm just a captive boy. I'm just a foreigner, a pilgrim. I'm a stranger in a distant land, Lord. But I want to keep myself pure. 
I want to be usable to you. I want to obey and serve you. And Lord, if you choose to raise us up to a place of influence, influence others so they can come to know the one true God. Oh, Lord, may we know you so that we can make you known to others in this world who so need to know you. Lord, I confess that the more that I know you, the more I want others to know you. It breaks my heart to go to India and see millions of people who are bowing before deities and going through all sorts of superstition. They have all their millions of gods that they are terrified of, but not one Savior. Oh, Lord, I want them to know Jesus. Because I know you, I want them so desperately. I want them to know you. It breaks our heart when we see millions of Muslims all around the world who are going through all of their legalism and all their ritual and routine and they have no prophet who can forgive sin. They have no true Savior and how we want them to know Jesus Christ and know life through His name. Because we know You, Lord, we want them to know You. It breaks our hearts to go to Thailand or to China and other parts of the world where Buddhism is so prominent. Here's all the superstition of lighting of candles and bowing before a an idol and superstition and fear about all kinds of demons. Lord, they just don't know the Savior, Jesus, and how we want them to know Him because we know Him. And knowing You, Lord, is the greatest thing in life. And Lord, there's so many people who call themselves Christians who have no idea of who Christ is. They have no personal relationship with Him. We want them to know Him too. Our prayer, Lord, is in 2008 that we might know You more. And the more that we know you and love you and trust you, the more that we would teach others so that they too can know you. And so, Lord, would you grant this desire of our heart? Perhaps there's someone even here today who does not know Christ as their Savior. They have no hope of a consistent testimony. Their life is built on the sand. It's going to falter. Their home will fail and be broken. They have, boy, really, they have no hope for this year or for eternity. I pray that today they might come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and knowing Him that there would be a consistency and a foundation upon which life can be built. Allow us, Lord, as a church to be faithful to what You've called us to do, to equip believers to know, live, and defend God's truth. Allow us, Lord, wherever we are, to be faithful, no matter what the role, no matter what the relationship that You've given to us, allow us to be faithful to You and faithful to other people, faithful to the task that You've given to us. And let our testimony stem out of our devotion to you that we pray we love you we know you we trust your word and lord may that allow us to to make a difference whatever the future may hold this in jesus name we pray amen